Good evening, KXSFLP, San Francisco. 102.5 FM, streaming at the World Wide Web at KXSF.FM. You have frequency uplift in the house. Second Sunday action tonight. We're honored and blessed to host our second Sunday's poet, but more than that, an academic, a scholar, a activist, a storyteller, Fifi Lupe Nimitolo is going to come on in a little bit. We have some music from Oceania and some new music from all over the world. Broadcasting live here from Ilamu, from unceded Ramai Tush Ohlone territory. To begin, though, I think we'll start with some new music out of uh, New Zealand, I believe. And this is... This is The Oceans Before Me, featuring Kalala and Marina. Carry on the walk. And if it weren't for the sisters, I think a lot of us, the, the brothers in, in the group, would either be dead or locked up. At the time of the Dawn Raid, I was a young mother, just having left university and bringing up a young son. Those wounds who house the red squad, those boys were running out. Papas, they're coming back to you. Only in the end, they rise up, sons of anarchy magazines. Don't tell these things, but many wolves concave that day. Mothers miss their boys that day. 30 of them locked away if the slave trade is alive today many men would say their mothers pray mothers pray mothers prayers go the long way to jerusalem dismantle prisoners ministers conditioners hope we find a better man mothers and children Refined by what was taught there We grow inside of revolution They want to chop down cell Till the last tree fell We will not slip into the lull of their song Histories told The system will unfold If we hold true the origin of who we are And where we've been we Footsteps laid with love Carry on the wall Footsteps laid with love Carry on the wall Carry on the wall Footsteps laid with with the backbone of the, the crucible years. We did a lot of work in, in the office, uh, petitions, um, cooking sopasui and colour for the community and homework centres. Mariana, she was always my go-to person. I still think of her as a wonderful person who made such a difference in our group and was so dearly. And healing the, the open wound of the experiences of our families and our people during the dawn. 
And uh, thank you for tuning in. This is for the Frequency Uplift here at KXSFLP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. Streaming at the World Wide Web at KXSF.FM. I want to take 
this moment to uh, thank our frequency partners, KSFP, taking over from them on the terrestrial airwaves here at KXSF 102.5 FM. We do it like that, switching off six hours, public affairs, progressive politics, and now music and culture and a feature uh, from Oceania, from Pacifica, from uh, the poet and activist and academic scholar, Luifu Lupe Nuimetolu, coming on soon, but I want to take a moment and say some thanks to our various uh, underwriters, and we want to especially thank this underwriter. The Native American Health Center has been serving the California Bay Area Native population and other underserved groups in our region since 1972. NHC offers medical, dental, behavioral health, community wellness, and women, infant, and children's services at locations in San Francisco and Cap Street or in Richmond and Oakland. To learn more, visit nativehealth.org. Thanks for supporting San Francisco Community Radio. I'm 
Welcome back. That was from Australia, a Ethiopian man living in exile in uh, in uh, there in Australia. Yasa Haley, the track "Koma Alayim," a plea for uh, refugees there, especially during COVID, just released independently uh, during the pandemic. Before that, we heard "Tutahi." I believe that's how you say that. Get Up Stand Up featuring Shefu and King Kapisi from uh, Eroteroa from New Zealand. And before that, uh, to start out the hour, we were hearing Oceans Before Me, a uh, collaborative group of of female rappers, women rappers uh, from, again, from Eroteroa from New Zealand, Carry On The Walk, talking about the Don raids in the 1970s of... Uh, the Australian and, or the New Zealander government uh, expelling uh, and raiding um, lots of workers and migrants there brought over to provide cheap labor. And we are blessed and honored to have on the <laughs> phone with us Fui uh, Filipe Nuimetola, a uh, academic, a Tongan scholar, storyteller, community organizer, having received her doctorate at the uh, Comparative Ethnic Studies Department, UC Berkeley. She's now a 2021 UC President's Postdoctoral Fellow at the Department of Native American Studies at the University of California, Davis, working on two manuscripts, the, manu- the Mana of the Tongan Every Day, Tongan Grief and Mourning, Patriarchal Violence and Remembering, as well as a collection of creative uh, nonfiction narratives, <laughs> looking for... You're going to have to correct me if we tepo searching uh-huh. for uh-huh. our mother. Also on the founding committee of a number of um, uh, initiatives around climate justice, the Moana Nui Pacific Islander Climate Justice Project, working with community organizations as well as facilitating and or having worked facilitating ceremony and restorative justice work with Pacific Islander prisoners in Northern California as well as working for prisoner abolition. Beyond that, she's a historian with the Segorate Land Trust, an urban indigenous women-led land trust working to rematriate indigenous lands. Um, It goes on. 
a fierce advocate <laughs> for expanding. We're good. We're, good. We're good. Is that enough? <laughs> I just want to say that she's a, a brilliant writer, a brilliant, I would say, poet and storyteller and a fierce advocate for expanding the visibility and the scope of uh, Pacific Islander studies um, in California and throughout the world. Welcome. We thank you for coming through. Bob, wow. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. I, I have to say, uh, Bob, what a what an introduction. And, you know, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, you know, the work that you do here in the Bay Area, you know, the, the work, the important work of creating this, this program. And actually, you know, Bob, when I think about stories, right, because this is what we're going to talk about today, um, stories, mm-hmm. I think of the origin story of how we connected. Sure. was actually uh, creating the artwork, right, and working with our various communities uh, to create the artwork for, was it 2015 uh, Climate Justice March here in Oakland? Yeah. And it met you creating artwork with our wonderful, also our homie and, and the respected, uh, uh, actually world-renowned um, artist as well, uh, David Solnit. So that's our origin story, and what brings us together is, is our commitment that right? is really our commitment to our, our Mother Earth. And so I, I just want to say, Malo, Malo, Bob, Malo, Malo, Maofa, Malo, Maofa, Thank you so much, Bob, for your work. Right? For your work. Uh, thank you for the great love. Uh, that, that is a work that you do that brings me here tonight. And also, thank you for the great work of holding up the land mm. and, and taking care of our Mother Earth. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that uh, that bit of props. It was an honor and uh, and really fun to work with you guys in that coalition and create that beautiful ba- the set of banners. Actually, um, so your your work uh, fundamentally has a, a lot of roots in storytelling and in the art of. Um, bringing people together in the art of uncovering stories and of of telling those hidden stories. Um, so, t- tell me a little bit about the the two books you're working on. But yeah, tell me just a little bit about them, and we'll go from there. Sure, sure. Well, to to, to talk about storytelling, you know, as an indigenous person, uh, and and Bob, I also just want to say thank you so much, also for uh, just you know, just uh, thank you so much for 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 naming me as a poet, mm. right, for naming me as a poet. What a great honor that is, and also a really humble, a really humble calling, mm. right? And that's that's what storytelling is. It is. It's a humble calling, um, and it's for as a as a Tongan, as an indigenous woman. Uh, storytelling is also an ancestral calling. Mm-hmm. Right? It is an ancestral calling. You know, when I was writing the dissertation, Bob, you know, that took me that took me more than a decade. Right, and I talk a lot about that, especially because I work with so many young people, um, many so so many young people uh, that 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 are that come from working class families, many uh uh Tongan Pacific Islander young people, uh, California Indian young people, African American young people who who are really afraid to go into academia. First and foremost because of our invisibility as people of color and also because of this elitism, you know, it's class elitism. So I always talk about the fact that it took me thirteen years. Not this is just this is only for the PhD, right? This is not even for the MA and the undergraduate. 
but I talk about it. I talk about it because I hope that it can help to, you know, help some of the, the shame to dissipate and also to normalize our own time, right? Normalize that it takes much, much more than this uh, particular kind of allotments of time that we're given to have it done. And so um, the dissertation taking, so, so talking about that, also is always in relationship with other people, right? How, mm-hmm. how that was, how that particular, uh, uh, for me, book of stories uh, was completed was really because of the relationship that so many people uh, never gave up on, right? right? And that's, that's me. They never gave up on me. And I'm so grateful to them because it's really through their prayers and their great love for me. You know, Bob, to, to talk about stories, I, I really have to. It's always about a genealogy, right? It's about a genealogy of the people that came before, um, people that I'm part, you know, in relationship with at this current moment, and always storytelling, always storytelling for the indigenous storyteller. Mm-hmm. Our role uh, in telling the stories is always because of our great love and our relationship, or, or what we call is called Va, right? It's our, our relationship to the ancestors of the next seven generations. And I, I learned this from my, my father, you know, my beloved father, um, the late Tangata uh, Aulakepa, who, and also my grandmother, on my, on my father's side, paternal side, my grandmother, Sally Loa. Both of them, I, I really feel really blessed that I had learned from both of them, who I consider two of the most talented orators, mm. Tongan orators that I had met in my lifetime. And what a, what a great honor to learn from both of them. Because when I learned, you know, uh, Bob, my father, and just also, uh, you know, beloved listeners, uh, thank you so much for making the time to, to join us in our conversation tonight. You know, uh, my father worked as a, a translator for the Mormon Church. And my grandmother uh, was a, you know, was a, my grandmother, of course, she, she lived in, in Tonga, never came to the United States. My grandmother was a was really well respected in Dawn for her role. This is important. I always this is really really important for her role as a woman, mm-hmm. right? And as a keeper of galore, a keeper of stories, right? A, a, a keeper of the importance of being Tongan. Mm-hmm. And I think about what she did really well that was so important. You, you know, uh, Bob and listeners, uh, listeners. Uh, um, one of the things that she did really well that I still remember. And I just cherish it within my heart and in my memory is that she would be invited to go to so many Tongan weddings, you know, birthday parties, a church, uh, you know, church openings. She would be invited to go to all the social events. She was quite a social, you know, social icon in Tonga. And her role, right, her role as a Tongan woman, particularly uh, coming from the family that she did, was the recitation of genealogy. Right? To tell, to, and it was always about to come to these particular gatherings, social gatherings, to remind us Tongans of who we are and our connections to each other. Right? And one great, and, but as I've grown older, of course, I'm able to process that a little more. I see that, that my grandfather, my grandmother, Sally Law, and, and my beloved father, Tangata, the role of narrative, of, of tracing genealogies, was much more than what we see, you know, here, perhaps in the West, of what I see all of these genealogical uh, um, uh, companies doing. 
Ray, what they were so concerned about with these stories was not just the honoring of the past, right, tracing our connections for this present moment. But, Bob, it was always about, it was always about reimagining, and it was always about this great love and cultivating our ba, our relationality with the next seven generations. It's striking to me that, you know, this is such a, a deep calling and across generations. And you are also, you know, in your work as an academic confronting, you know, generational trauma and, and trying to bring out these stories um, that, that, you know, that, that uh, are transformational for people. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about the, the narratives around... Um, around the, the, the book of, of Hine, I'm sorry, Hine Tepo. Yeah, Hine Tepo, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's striking so the, beauty, the beauty of that, we talked about this earlier, but the beauty of that narrative, and, and the, in some ways the, the difficulty and the tragedy of that is like, we remember those stories and those kind of histories and to recast them in a new light. So please tell us a little bit about that, that work and, and how you're recapturing and changing things there. Thank you so much, Bob. You know, he didn't pull for us from Polynesia, right? So Polynesia, the, the Pacific, you know, or Oceania, which is a, an important, important. It, Oceania is a, is a term that was, that was a, a coin that was given to us by one of our beloved fathers of Pacific Island Studies, uh, the late uh, Dr. Professor Ed Bellyhow Opa. I mean, um, it, 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 and this particular region of the world uh, includes, uh, you know, Polynesia, uh, the part of the world where I'm from, of, of the of Oceania, excuse me, where I'm from. That includes many island nations that so many of us in the West know, like, for example, Samoa, right? Samoa uh, or Aotearoa, New Zealand, Hawaii, right? Rapa Nui. So these are all places that. These are all island nations that are more familiar um, to the West. And then, of course, you know, it includes our, the Black Pacific, right? The Black Pacific were uh, some of the most important work of indigenous resistance that's happening. This is the Black Pacific, right? This is happening with our relatives, our brothers and sisters in West Papua. And I just really want to bring that up. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. And then also Micronesia. Right? And this is also, so many Americans also know about Micronesia because, you know, there are many Chamorros of people from Guam, mm -hmm. right, here, here uh, the, this is the Mariana Islands, right, Balao. These are all the particular island nations that are in these, all these three. Um, of course, these were all of these severing of these, uh, you know, all of these differences, excuse me, and uh, uh, between the three island groups. Are, were created by colonization right. because for us our cosmology and especially reclaiming Oceania that there aren't you know these particular uh, severing of ties or differences between all of us right including our beloved Black Pacific this this term Oceania shows us also how we also our our uh, what where our greatest strength comes from is our collect collective mana right our collective mm -hmm sharing our collective genealogy that is grounded, right, that is grounded within the largest body of water mm. on our Mother Earth, which is the Pacific Ocean, right? And so, Hine Nui Te Po, 
right? Hinenuitepo comes from that genealogy. Hinenuitepo uh, is to 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 also say this the the name, you know, Bob. For me, I say it with great humility. Hinenuitepo is our great mother, one of the one of the most powerful of, or have the most the greatest mana uh, deities, a female deity in the Pacific, right, and especially in in Tonga. And, and one of the, the, you know, looking for our mother, Hinenuitepo, um, is actually, it's actually, it begins with, with really speaking back to these particular origin stories, these colonial, for me, for me, I actually, in, in the writing that I do, I argue that these are actually colonial stories, mm. right? And Huni, in this particular story, I'm in conversation with, uh, you know, the renowned Tongan scholar, Futahelu uh, and his telling of the story of Hinenuitepo. And in his telling of this origin story of, of our beloved mother, right, the greatest, who has the greatest mana in Tonga, and also she's throughout the, it's just throughout uh, Mauna Nui or Polynesia. So she has, uh, her role is also revered in uh, um, um, Hawaii, also in um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, right? And so in this particular story about Tonga, the story is about one of the lesser male gods who comes in to her, uh, you know, undetected, so to speak, in the, the telling of the story that, that uh, Futahelu, uh, with all due respect, right, he tells the story of, of Maui, a, a lesser god, making his way into this, you know, to this great god, the greatest mana. He comes into her room, and while she's sleeping, right, he enters her body. Right? So this is part of a, of a, of a narrative, uh, an origin story. And for me as a Tongan woman, I had always grown up with the story. Right? I heard it on A3Z, which is a Tongan, A3Z, mm-hmm. right? which is a Tongan, I, I'm saying that in the New Zealand way, uh, Z is always Z, so it's A3Z. Um, during the summers when we were children going to Tonga, um, you know, Tonga side school, which is an elementary school, we would hear these stories you know, in the morning. There are always these origin stories, and the origin stories were always about, you know, they were always about the, the, some of the core themes that, that tied all of these narratives together, mm-hmm. um, including another narrative of how the origin of kava, right? Kava is a kava root, is a, is a sacred drink in the Pacific, throughout the Pacific, not just in Tonga, I mean, uh, really, Melanesia, also in uh, uh, Micronesia, and throughout Polynesia, right? A sacred, it's, it comes, and many people here, the, here in the Bay Area, of course, know, right, from alternative medicine, right. uh, that it's a root. So this particular narrative on the origin of Kava is about Faith Papa, this, you know, this do- a, a daughter, right? A daughter whose life is taken by a Tongan king in order for, for, for and, and then her body is buried, and it is, beca- and it is through her body that Kava, uh, you know, was birthed and comes to be. Mm. And so, you know, the, what I do in this particular story, uh, you know, relatives who are listening and also to, you know, uh, Bob, is that I ask the question, you know, why is it that in all these particular narratives on these origin stories that are revered, that, that tell us of what it means to be Tongan, that seems like violence against women, is always centered. 
right? Right. So that's that's really this is how I came to doing the the research project, um, the dissertation, and also uh, this book, uh, Looking for Hina Nui Tepo, which is a book of creative nonfiction. So I actually I read I talk back I speak back, right? Of course, this is a word that so many uh, African American um, feminist scholars have brought up, right? We're speaking back. We're speaking back uh, to the white master. We are in this particular, uh, in, the, in, in the ways that I retell these stories, I am actually saying that these are not, quote, unquote, traditional Tongan stories. And if they are, traditional for who? Mm-hmm. Right? Traditional for who? And so um, I, I'm very critical of the heteropatriarchy that was brought to the Pacific, brought to Tonga, and also my work looks at indigenous California. So um, I'm really critical of how heteropatriarchy, which is a Western invention to our indigenous lands, right. how, how heteropatriarchy has become normalized and what is perhaps, Bob, you know, and relatives who are listening, perhaps what is the most pernicious about, uh, about uh, heteropatriarchy is that how we as indigenous people view it mm-hmm. as a tradition. And so um, that's that book, Hine uh, Nui That's what that particular book is centered on. And then, of course, uh, the, the Mana of the Tongan Every Day, it's actually, it's my dissertation. <laughs> it's, it's my baby, you know, the one that took 13 years, you know. So, it's, you know, it's, a, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of a, a child now. It's no longer <laughs> just a baby. It's a teenager. And, um, <laughs> go ahead, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I just said it's a teenager, and it's ready for yeah, the world. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not just a baby anymore. It's a, it's a teenager, and it, it is a book uh, that looks at history, right? It looks mm-hmm. at, at Tongan histories. It looks at, uh, at the phenomenon of, 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 what are, of white terror, right, that I redefine. Um, white terror is, is a racialized violence uh, aimed to produce colonial systems of kinship and social relationalities uh, by surveilling, legislating colonial institutions of gender, sexualities, and families that privilege heteropatriarchy. And, and, and Bob, the surveillance extends to the very intimate cores, right? Because this is, this is where I'm most interested in. It's mm-hmm. the very intimate contours of private, you know, our private relationalities and the minutia of everyday Tongan life. And this new status quo um, is the work that I do, both in the, in the research work that I do and in the storytelling um, that I do in Hinnan New Tepul, I argue that this new status quo is produced as well as maintained through the normalization of violence against the bodies of Tongan women and girls. Mm. And correspondingly, I argue that the scope of white terror is an inextricably tied to the expropriation of the Tongan natural world or the Fonua, right, the land or our mother earth, and to the Moana or our mother, the ocean. And so... Um, in the work that I, I do, both in the scholarship and also in the storytelling, um, I, I also are, I, I mean, it's not really, these are not my concepts. These are, are actually tra- traditional telling concepts. That these cosmologies, you know, the, the natural world, these are cosmologies that are often delineated as feminine, mm-hmm. and they're located at the core of what we as Tongan people uh, defined as the sacred. And so it's really an attack on the sacred, in a way, in, in trying to change minds and devalue the our 
are and a people's attachment to both to the land and to to their their women, to the mothers, to their sisters. Yeah, yeah, Bob. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I I think about uh, I think about the the work to yes, exactly, exactly. You know, I'm just thinking and just being in conversation with what you just said. I also think about um, thinking about uh, the Lashawn Ohlone, um leader, Karina Gold, definition of rematriation, right? And the work that uh, an organization like Sigourity, uh does, right? She always talks about, um, of course, the rematriation really, uh, it, it, it is a work. It is a work that it, it is a work and the core of one of the core core objective of rematriation, according to Gould's definition, is to end violence against women, right? Which is, in many, it is to confront the histories of white terror here in California as well. Mm-hmm. And in her definition, and I just bring this up, Bob, in conversation with what you just said, she said, we also embrace, we also embrace our brothers, you know, in this work uh, that, that she does, uh, cl- uh, claiming that rematriation is indigenous women's work. She says it also includes our indigenous brothers. It is also to bring in our indigenous uncles, right? Our lovers, maybe husbands, right? So it includes it includes men. And why she says this is important because in the definitions of gender, and in the, and what happened with white terror is that indigenous men also lost their way, mm. right? And in this um, this imbalance that has been brought into our mother earth through this, you know, the different uh, uh, stages of colonialism here in California, was that also indigenous men also uh, were part of the the severing of ties and the disconnection from our Mother Earth. So this healing, right, this healing has to include, and of course, as you know, Bob, her definition, you know, uh, Karina Gold's definition, too, of rematriation includes you know, it's so generous, too. It's so generous. It includes all of us as guests, right? Mm-hmm. It includes all of us as guests now. Like me, although I'm an indigenous person from the Pacific and, and Tonga, I'm a guest on this indigenous land, exactly. right? And in the work of rematriation, it's also this, this generous vision, and I really am so humbled by it. And she says, you know, um, and I, she says, as, as guests, as guests on, on Huchin, or, or the land that is now known as the East Bay, or as guests on this land that is now known as California, it is your responsibility to stand with us. This is, you know, her quote. Mm. To stand with us, you know, the Lishan Ohlone tribe, to protect our indigenous sacred sites. End of quote. And, and importantly, to uh, stand with and to stand with the land and to... Um, you know, on uh, to, to to try to recenter the land and and women in and women's leadership in what we do because that has been the colonial project to shift that that sense of attachment and that sense of relation that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, you're very right, Bob. Well, I, I wonder uh, if we if. Maybe I could mm-hmm. uh, ask you to read something from one of your books. Uh, <laughs> your your poetic. I, I I'm I'm going to draw out the poet in you and and say, t- give us a give us some of the sense of the storytelling. I've I've read some incredibly beautiful pieces by you in blogs and in in contexts of other books. Um, please, uh, if you would read us a, a tell us a story. 
Sure. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, and maybe give us a well, I'll go, go ahead, Bob. And, and maybe I'm sorry. You, I'm, uh, I'm going to say give people the context of the story that you tell. Oh, okay. Well, this particular one, uh, Ellie's story, um, it, it's actually a story um, when I was uh, much younger and I, I, you know, I was still living in Utah, this particular story. I was still living in Utah. And um, as you can see from the, the narrative, um, I do what a lot of women uh, do. Right? I, I follow the examples, I, I guess, that, and perhaps it's a really gendered uh, cycle that I'm participating in. Uh, it is a cycle of violence. And I, I follow, at this particular time in my life, I follow a boyfriend to L.A. Um, it, was a, it was a very violent relationship. But at that time in my life, as a young woman, I felt that I had no other options. And so this is, this is that particular story. Mm -hmm. The bright lights of the city surround her like flies. She mumbles a prayer learned in Sunday school and holds on tightly to the cold air. Hope funnels through her fingers like the daughter her parents couldn't keep. Two weeks ago, she fled her home in Utah, fleeing the grasp of the Mormon church and her parents' shame, freshly pickled like the apricots church leaders taught her to preserve every autumn, a skill that promised to make her into a good wife. Tonight, on the corner of Sepulveda Boulevard, bright light exposed the blue bruises on her body, disguising her as an older woman. She is her mother, her grandmother, lingering in dark corners, abandoning guests and the tedium of polite conversations. 3 a.m., 3 a.m., she telephones her mother, pleading for her life, for a cusp of warmth to quell the cold. She imagines that their shared silences, histories of bruised abdomen and crushed collarbones at the hands of men were reasons enough to reconnect them, bury the aching distance, and reunite them. But the silence on the other end hangs and festers like a wound. She is reminded that in her family, there are only sons. Wow, that's that's amazing. Thank you for for sharing that and for you know being open with that. What a what a powerful sort of evocation of that of that state and that level of that kind of accepted violence. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Thanks so much, Bob. So, um, you I know, mean, Bob, go ahead. Yes. No, I was go just going to sort of make a bridge and just say that, I mean, you're, 
the the work that you've done. We talked about this earlier um, when we talked um, yesterday, but um, that you've done a lot of work um, with with prisoners, with uh, doing restorative justice work and ceremony, being allowed to do ceremony with Pacific Islander, uh, predominantly men, but women as well, um, and acknowledging and healing those kind of wounds. And um, I want you to talk a little bit about that because it's sort of a profound, a profound part of this project, if you want to call it that, the big project of this mm-hmm. healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a, you know, when I talk about genealogies of, of uh, being able to tell stories um, again, perhaps to come back into to writing and to to even speaking, Bob, because for, for a while I was unable to speak, right? Perhaps the kind of, um, the kind of, the kind of ways that I, I am now embodying um, language and speaking from my heart without the shame that I once had. Um, I mean, of course, I can't say that I don't have the shame, right? Our relatives, it's still there, and the wound is still there. But um, to speak at this time in my life um, with just the, the, the hope and the faith that I have at this time, I really have to, um, I really want to, uh, I really want to say thank you, Malo e Ofa, Thank you for the great love to the relatives, the indigenous, Pacific Islander and Native American relatives behind bars. I had the great honor of uh, working, right, um, teaching, excuse me, if I can maybe put that in a different way, teaching Pacific Island studies at Solano Prison, San Quentin Prison, both prisons from a uh, prison's uh, spaces of incarceration for men, and then um, for our sisters at Chowchilla. And I just really want to say thank you so much to my sister, Loa Numetolu, and also to Native Hawaiian elder Kumu Kaui Peralta for including me in this journey. Because Bob, you know, for Bob and, rel- and relatives who are here tonight uh, being part of this conversation, if there is a place that you see the horrors and the devastation of white terror, it would be in prison. It would be our relatives who are living behind the prison walls. And so for me, you know, uh, Bob, I always talk about um, how meeting the relatives behind bars was actually one of the places for me, uh, perhaps, that I felt I didn't have all the shame. When I, I, I always talk about how I went to UC Berkeley and even with the, you know, just the kindest, the most well-intentioned professors and friends there, I always felt uh, invisible and I also, I always felt inadequate. You know, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant and my family, when we first came to the United States, I, uh, we lived for several years in uh, the Brigham Young University trailer courts. Right, and so that also uh, shaped the ways that I looked at the world. Um, I always saw myself as a as a poor person, and so to go into a place, you know, an elite place of uh, academia like UC Berkeley, was to was to also know that I didn't fit in, and that people like me 
um, where it's supposed to be in a place like that. Right, so it was to go to, it was actually through this work of teaching Pacific Island studies at these um, uh, carceral institutions that I met um, men, women, you know, elders. I, I would, you know, we all, all the ages from 20 all the way to the 70s, right? So young people to elders. And it was at this place that I, that the women's story was my story. And the women's stories were my story. I think, Bob, I told you about a Native American woman who was my age and who had a son who was actually my my nephew or my son Nicolas's age. Okay. Right? And in the story, as I shared with you, uh, this sister, our stories almost were just identical. Mm. Right? Her stories are yeah. uh, violent. And she tells the story of that for years and years, decades going to the police, following the rules, so to speak, right? reporting the violence that happened at home of what this, you know, of what her uh, partner did to her behind closed doors. And every, in all, in all the incidents, it was dismissed. And it was only at the time that this partner of hers came after her son, right? This, this young boy that was as old as Nicolasi. Right, it was only at this time that he came up, that he came up to her son that she used the gun, right, this weapon, to defend him. And an accident happens, and she takes his life. And uh, Lori is uh, she she's behind bars, of course, for um, for life. Oh, and also, or, or excuse me, also uh, uh, might be out for good behavior, mm. right? But that she's going to spend the majority of her life behind bars. For an act of self-defense, really. For, for self-defense, yeah. So, and then, you know, Bob and, and relatives who are listening, Lori's story actually was similar. It was, I mean, this is, uh, a, Lori's story is a story, is a shared stories, a shared struggle that she shares with so many women that are also behind bars in Chowchilla. Right? And so I hold that story, too, as I also tell another story. One of the work, uh, a work that's so profound to me that actually also changed my life was the work with the male prisoners. Because this was an opportunity for me um, to meet um, men, you know, Pacific Islander men who reminded me of my father, you know, or perhaps um, uncles, or perhaps for me even boyfriends at times in my life uh, who were perpetrators of violence, right? And in that uh, carceral space, we all had to confront each other. And I always remember one of the narratives that were so moving to me, and of course I can't use names because of confidentiality in this particular case, um, but an elder, right? elders, excuse me, not even just one, elders, after um, doing, doing the groups and, and um, meeting, you know, doing the groups with the, the men for, you know, several, several months and building up relationships of trust, and especially learning together, 
it was, you know, one, one afternoon, and I remember this really clearly, um, when the men also said, when I actually thanked them, right? I remember, of course, crying and thanking them um, for, for helping me to create closures, right? And I mean, not, not full closures, right, everybody, but it was the beginning of closures, mm. uh, the beginning of created healing. And actually, the men, Right, <laughs> these men, you know, and I and I want to I want to paint this picture not not in a sense of racialization, but I want to paint it because I want to show the humanity, mm. right? At this moment, some of these men also had committed uh, uh, violence against women on the outside. You know, they were uh, uh, they had some of them had created a lot of violence and havoc in the world before they they were incarcerated, and in this particular moment. What these men also said was that this relationship that we shared or this vile relationality was reciprocal because for the first time in their life, they were able to say sorry to the daughter that they no longer see, mm. that no longer sees them, that no longer, that has cut off their relationship right. or the wife. You know, this was really, you know, and, this is really a profound moment for me because I saw too that um, this was the seeds um, of healing was not just for me, but it was also for them. And it was, you know, relative to write this dissertation, it was the women behind bars and it was the men who said, Fui Fui Lupe. You're one of the privileged to get to leave these walls. So when you go, when you leave these walls, remember, please remember, that is your responsibility to tell these stories. Mm. So this is, I want to thank them to tell to tell these stories and to tell uh, to set, to tell these stories uh, and to do the work um, that centers violence against women, it was these brothers and sisters behind bars who gave me the courage mm. to tell these stories. And I want to acknowledge them, and I want to humbly thank them. Mm. It's such a profound uh, prospect to be able to try to touch that um, that humanity and to try to begin the healing process of, of just such long intergenerational trauma that we've, we've been talking about. I do need to take a moment here and thank one of our, our sponsors. It is, uh, you have been listening to, um, to poet, academic, activist, Fui uh, Fui Lupe Nime Tolu, who is uh, our guest tonight as a second Sunday's poet. And this is KXSFLP, San Francisco, the Frequency Uplift. We are uh, grateful to you, Fui and we are grateful to the listening audience, and we're grateful to these guys for helping out. So uh, we'll hear this. Support for KXSF is provided by Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned cooperative that has been serving San Francisco vegetarian food and providing a model for sustainable living since 1975. Rainbow is located at 1745 Folsom Street. Visit them online at rainbow.coop. KXSF would like to thank Rainbow Grocery for its continued support. 
Got to take care of business there. Thanks again for right. tuning in, and thank you for, for, for being with us. So is there a, a story from there that you want to share or another story that you'd like to yeah, yeah, and I know our I know our time, uh, Bob uh, is, um, you know, we don't have a lot of time, and so actually, I I could totally read the the poem that also that we had talked about before, mm. uh, the poem, you know, our our good sister, uh, Dr. Rupa Maria, and um, you know, the wonderful Raj Patel wrote in their important book, yep. uh, Inflamed. I'm very very happy to read that. It's a gorgeous poem, and. Uh... A, a great book as well, both uh, both the, that uh, the book inflamed. So, please, thank you, and thank you for for sharing this. We can go on a little longer. We have some great music too from Oceania to play, um, including. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, but please tell uh, us know, that tell us up, uh, relatives. Um, the West Berkeley Shell Mound mm. is is really what the the um, the poem is about. It's. Uh, it is a, the National Trust for Historic Preservation has placed the West Berkeley Shell Mound in their 2020 list of America's 11 most endangered historic places. Right, and, and for those of you who live here in the Bay Area, I mean, gosh, what a what a thriving movement, right? What a thriving movement for um, uh, Indigenous self determination that includes all of us. Right. I, I absolutely love going to the uh, Shell Mound, you know, the, the you know, Shell Mound um, uh, ceremonies, you know, protests, as some people might call it, because it like has everybody. Right. It's got, um, you know, of course, you know, Berkeley, so many wonderful Berkeley elders. Right. Uh, you know, wonderful uh, white allies and accomplices. Right. Who are, I mean, you know, from the city of Berkeley. Then you have all the, so many wonderful, like, Korean drummers. Oh, my gosh, how fun is that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Also, you know, so many of the, the queer and trans community is right there. It's, it's, it plays such an important and pivotal role, right? In the organizing of the, of the event, right, who are forefront, are also some of the most, you know, I, I think about one of my most favorite, favorite. In fact, I have it right here right now. Uh, the Save the West Berkeley, a beautiful, beautiful poster uh, that was created by, you know, Mika uh, Basant, mm. the trans, the really well-respected uh, trans artist. Of course, you know, David Solnitz, you know, Bob, our homies there as well, <laughs> yep. all his many artists, you know, um, also so many young African-American activists and, and community leaders are there, uh, people from my community, Pacific Islanders. Right. And just, you know, so many different California Indians are also part of it. So it's just so, so beautiful. So if you're able to, you know, community, please check out Shell Mound, um, S-H-E-L-L-M-O-U-N-D dot O-R-G. Right. And so the Shell Mound also is, is the oldest, the, the, the one, the Shell Mound, the Berkeley, the West Berkeley Shell Mound, excuse me, is the oldest sacred site. Right, the Ohlone Sacred Site here in the Bay Area. And they are uh, the Lishan Ohlone Tribe. Karina Gold, of course, is one of the stewards of this uh, sacred site. And they are fighting, they're really fighting uh, to protect the site for the next seven generations. And so this particular um, poem, and it's called, uh, this particular poem is called From Moana Nui uh, to the West Berkeley Shell Mounds. I really want to give a big shout out to uh, one of my heroes, 
and actually um, uh, the past uh, San Francisco Poet Laureate, the Indigenous Poet Laureate, Kim Shock, for believing in me because she really encouraged me to write this poem. So um, thank you also to our good friends, Rupa and Raj, for, for publishing it in your important book. So the poem has a few sections, everybody, so please bear with me. So the first part is called Story Number One, The Desecration. The desecration of the sacred, violence against her native woman body, persistent upon his arrival. He brought out all the instruments of progress baptized and renamed her Berkeley. Her body submerged under him. He is heavy and unrelenting as empire. Her plated black hair, he wrangled into platitudes, singed the iridescent strands to silence. He is the weight of asphalt a lonely parking lot, his ownership of her, he termed as, quote, freedom, end of quote. Story number two, the Tongan Mormon baptism ceremony. I am an eight-year-old girl at my Mormon baptism ceremony in a small chapel in Maofangatonga. My hair plaited and split in two, a division so inconsolable. My mother tenderly tied the wounds with bright white ribbons to mark this moment. The missionary termed as, quote, coming of the light. End of quote. Under a leaning breadfruit tree outside the Mormon chapel, hungry dogs mate, irrespectively of the piety inside. His priesthood authority intrusive, like the bleach baptismal water, surrounds me. My black hair contorted in their net severing the cycles of memories until I am no longer able to discern my breath from drowning. He renamed me, declaring the Moana on behalf of his God, bounded my feet with ropes made from woven human hair, Lined with spears of whalebone, tied with knotted fowl, baptized and converted me into a carcass of an obedient daughter and wife. This moment he proudly records in his missionary diary as, quote, light. End of quote. Story number three, 
hashtag, we are still here. The West Berkeley Shell Mound, her native woman body rests under asphalt, luminous mana silenced by a parking lot, man-made and mundane. She is their private property owned by a white settler family who refused to negotiate with Indians. On the battlegrounds in Huchin and in Uita, under the hands of missionaries and mercenaries, our children's bones hung from trees like decomposed fetika fruit. The flagrant sour taste on our tongues when we thought all was lost. When we thought all was lost. The sacred was there. She picked up our memories. Ancestors left for dead. She fed our mouths with the flesh of sweet acorn and salt water from her breast until we grew strong, fearless. She weaves the circuitous dance of death and birth into her long black hair. Dream times exchanged through collective breath from our Moananui to Huchin. She cuffed origin stories birthed before his arrival. Innumerable constellations, they grow in our altars like flowing yellow poor garlands in our hair. Yes, she is survivor, creation creator, always here. Yes, we remember the stories of us after the missionary and the mercenary are gone. Thank you. Thank you, Fui Fui Lupe Nuimitola, for that poem from Moana Nui to the West Berkeley Shell Mound. Um, it's amazing. That's such, a, that's such a powerful poem, and I've said this before to you, but um, such, it, it encapsulates, it feels like, this work and what we've been talking about, the telling of stories and the honoring and of 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 the connections to the land and the naming of those wounds that that we must heal in order to carry on and have a sustainable world for our children right right mm -hmm. i mean it strikes me it's it's so um powerful it strikes me that uh you know the you you were working with Sigarte and with the West Berkeley Shell Mound um, around the rematriation issues, and then throughout you know um, throughout Oceania, throughout um, uh, uh, as you say, Black Black Polynesia, West Papua, other places mm -hmm. like that. You know, people are struggling for their land, struggling to reclaim land in Hawaii. The struggle around Mauna Kea. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's, it's, it strikes me that at the root, it's always about, 
struggling to maintain that connection and struggling to maintain, as as the Hawaiians say, the aloha aina, the, the love of land, mm-hmm. the, the action for the land. Mm-hmm. It seems like, at, and, and it seems like, and as we've talked about and demonstrated about uh, 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 Pacific Islander peoples are at the forefront of that struggle because of their uh, vulnerability to climate change and sea level rise, as well as just the legacy of the massive colonial project throughout Polynesia. Yeah, yeah. So I think what I'd like to do is is maybe play, a, a friend of mine sent me this amazing uh, a collection or a collection of... Um, a, a compilation, but including a a uh, anthem for the folks, uh, the the protectors um, from Mauna Kea, a a, con- a song composed by uh, the Kumu, the teacher uh, Hinale Moana Wong, mm-hmm. which has become an mm-hmm. anthem. And then maybe we can come back and talk a little more if you if you are willing to just hang out through this song. But it's a it's a a I don't actually know the translation, but it is called um, Kuhaheu, and it's uh, it's actually a a song by that gentleman. But this is a rendition by some of the best singers um, throughout the Hawaii, Hawaiian Islands. Um, and let's let's hear it, and we'll be right back. Excellent, excellent. Okay. Oops. Actually, that didn't work. That little video didn't work. Uh-oh. And also, you know, Bob, this uh, something really important about Kumuhina, mm, who is, uh, you know, this is uh, her her creation. Is that Kumuhina is is actually a well respected uh, mahu uh, or uh, two spirit? Um, she is a tribe, uh, Kanaka Mali Native Hawaiian uh, woman, mm. and so uh, Kumuhina also is at the forefront. Of fighting for self, uh, for self determination, for Hawaiian sovereignty, right? And and in her work, which is so important to point out, is that she talks about that um, that Mahu have always played an important role in Hawaiian culture, right? Hawaii, uh, Mahu were sacred, Mahu were revered in Hawaiian culture, right? And this uh, part of what also happened with white terror in Hawaii was the, the loss, right, and the criminalization of uh, Mahu. So, yeah, you know, for many of, for so many of us throughout the world, we really look at Kumuhina as a warrior, mm. who as a warrior who not only puts uh, Hawaiian self-determination at the forefront and the protection of the sacred, like the sacred Malakia, and in addition, and as part of that movement, she also censors. Right, she censors Mahu. Mm-hmm. So we love her so much. And this is the resistance song for Mauna Kea. Let's see if we can get All this right. to work now. Here we go. I have this amazing version, and I'm not, for some reason, I'm not getting it to be able to play. I'm going to play the original version of it. I have that queued up as well. Here we go with this. 
And that was 
uh, Himalaya Moana Wong and a protest anthem for the Mauna Kea protests. Uh, the song Ku Haweu E Ku Hawaii, I believe. I did my best. <laughs> and we are uh, blessed and honored to be in conversation and hear readings from. Um, from Fuifi uh, Lupe Nuimatolu, who's a Tongan academic, a poet, a activist, a community activist. Um, and we were talking about sort of, in a way, the, the unity of the work between the Pacific Islander struggle for uh, land and um, in, in, across Oceania, uh, as well as with indigenous rights here in the Bay Area with the Segorate Land Trust and the West Berkeley Shellmound. And I was wondering if we, what, um, maybe some background about sort of similar struggles in Tonga. And we were talking about West Papua as well, but let's start with Tonga and mm -hmm. tell me about that. Sure. I mean, what a, what a great question. And I love that question. And I, I'm just trying to think about how to frame, how to frame a question like that. It's large. Um, you you know maybe we can we can talk about this. You know I, I know that we're going to talk about West Papua a little uh, later, but one of the Tongan warriors actually, and one of the, our Pacific warriors, who was actually the prime minister, the late prime minister of of Tonga, who who has passed away, was the you know for me is the late great and beloved uh, honorable Akilisi Pohiva, right? And it and well and he passed away. Please forgive me. I, I know relatives. Please forgive me. Was it four years ago? Uh, four, three years ago? When Akilisi Bohiva, how Akilisi Bohiva became uh, a, a Tongan, uh, uh, a beloved Tongan prime minister was that he came through the Tongan pro democracy movement, right, which is a grassroots movement that began in the 1970s of, by Tongan commoners. Right, Tongan commoners who had no access to land. Right, so at the core of the Tongan pro-democracy movement was was were Tongans who who refused, right, who refused these new actually actually these this is a, actually what what uh, I argue are Western laws, right, of land ownership that happened in the 1875 Tongan Constitution. Right, where this concept of land ownership is actually institutionalized. And then this is actually created after the, the Tongan, after the colonization of Tongans uh, by the British. Right, and those led, that led to this Tongan constitution that for the first time, right, where a land now becomes a commodity. And a commodity that, that is only that is that the ownership of land, by the way, is only uh, who's who's given that privilege are Tongan elite or Ho'eki Tongan men, right? Tongan women do not have the access to land, and also Tongan commoners. So this pro-democracy movement that that Akilisi Bohiva is part of, and so many other you know Tongan warriors, and I really want to give a big shout out to the Tongan women who are an important part of this movement, but whose names and whose important work are actually invisibilized. Mm. So I want to give a big shout out. So um, 
this leads us also to Akilisi Pohiva's important role, right? And one of the very few uh, leaders throughout the Pacific who stand up for West Papua. And in Akilisi's uh, Pohiva's, um, you know, in, when he in his talks that he gave for West Papua at the UN in um, uh, New York, he talked about how human rights and democracy. He said his work with the human rights and democracy, his work with the Tongan pro-democracy movement, and his work as a Tongan, as a prime minister of Tonga, right, fighting for our Tongan self-determination. He says all of that is equal to the work of Tongans standing in solidarity, in political solidarity with West Papuans to defend their land against Indonesian, against the Indonesian military and against all the Western mining corporations in Indonesia that threaten it and are currently, of course, uh, creating genocide on their people right. and also expropriation, expropriating their land. You right? Were... So perhaps that, that's just, I hope that that's a little story. I hope that made sense. Yeah, no, there's, there's <laughs> just, just so many... Bob, I'm hoping anything makes sense. <laughs> it all it all completely makes sense, and it's just such a, a broad uh, and interconnected struggle, and so many struggles of similar kinds. I mean, it's really, um, it's it's a big job of of international solidarity that we're talking about. You were mentioning that there is work uh, again to uh, coming up and an action coming up to. Uh, to express that solidarity with 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 mm-hmm. West Papuan um, activists, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yeah. that. And... Yeah, well, you know, December first is a really important day for uh, uh, West Papua Merdeka or independence uh, and freedom. Please, relatives, forgive me. I was just going to give some information on the importance of December first, but I, I don't want to quote it right now because I might be wrong. But it all has to do with uh, the Morning Star flag. Right. So the Morning Star flag is the West Papuan flag. So um, uh, for 60 years now, the, uh, the West Papuans who are flying their own flag within, the, within West Papua or what is a land that is now called um, Indonesia, right? um, that it, to, to fly that flag is to, is to put yourself and your family under threat. So to fly that flag means that you're going to be imprisoned and also it means that, as we've seen in several examples, right, throughout the years, and especially now, it also means death. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the, this is why the Morning Star flag is, is so, so important. Um, you know, several years ago, we were um, very, very uh, honored to work with West Papuan freedom fighters that are now living in the United States, you know, John Anari and his family. Uh, we're also working with Herman White, 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 White Nani, uh, also another uh, freedom fighter and also a political prisoner here in the United States, um, to create uh, to create a, a march we did in San Francisco. This is several years, perhaps uh, 2015, right? And every single year after that, uh, this one was on Ramatush Ohlone land in San Francisco, right? And what we did was to raise that flag was to raise the, the Morning Star flag, the very flag that our, our West Papuan relatives were being imprisoned for or whose lives were taken 
by the Indonesian military after they did that great act of self-determination. So we also, we worked with, of course, uh, I know uh, Lushan Ohlone leader Karina Gold was also an important part of that um, ceremony. And each year, right, each year, uh, we come back to do it. Last year, you know, unfortunately, of course, relatives, we are, weren't able to do it because of COVID. And so this year, December 1st, we're working with wonderful young warriors, right? Uh, Samoans, Samoan, Tongan warriors, uh, Chamorro right, from Guam, also some Fijian uh, young people to put together a program this year. And we really want to honor the fact that our community has one of the highest, highest COVID infection and death rates here in the United States. So we really want to help support our community, first and foremost, by doing this on Zoom. Right, so that we're not meeting each other and um, you know creating uh, creating more violence, um, you know, or or death. So um, we're also hoping that by doing it on Zoom, we can reach a, a larger community here throughout California and also throughout the U.S. So, so you... yeah, I I know that the young people are are going to be coming out with their flyers this new week, Bob. So we're going to be posting that on um, social media. And Bob, I hope that I can send that to you, and you can also uh, post it on your site as well. Uh, absolutely. But t- tell us, which, how can people find this link? What websites or, or Facebook pages should people look for the December 1st action? That's a really great question. I know that I, I, from, uh, this, is, and this is just actually this is a conversation I heard today. They, they, they were saying that I think their last meeting is tomorrow to finalize everything, and then um, they will be coming out with an a Instagram page and all of that fun, fun. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I was just going to say fun stuff. I use that with kids a lot. Please forgive me. So they're going to come up with their media page, um, excuse me, um, tomorrow. Okay. I, I'm sorry about that, Bob, that that's I don't have that information uh, right up front. Okay. You know, at... again, another big you know, big website that goes all over the world. Uh, and this is, you know, Benny Wenda, one of the freedom fighters for, you know, most well-respected and well-known uh, freedom fighters for West Papua. Benny Wenda uh, is also uh, one of the leaders of the Free West Papua um, uh, movement. And there's so, and you know, they have a website, of course, that's already on, um, that you can search and find really easily a Facebook page, and lots of Instagram um, um, sites as well. Thank you for that, Fui. And um, uh, maybe we can go on and you were talking. I do want to say again, we are in uh, dialogue and uh, hearing readings from uh, Tongan poet and scholar and community activist, Fui Lupe Niometolu, who is... um, uh, working on some amazing books that are, you know, soon to be published. The Mana of Tongan, the Tongan Everyday, Tongan Grief and Mourning, Patriarchal Violence and Remembering Va, and as well as a uh, creative nonfiction narrative titled Looking for Hine Nui Tepo, Searching for Our Mother, uh, Confronting Intergenerational Trauma and, viol- and uh, Violence Against Women, as well as in general, uh, social justice issues for uh, the Pacific Islander community um, and indigenous people everywhere. We thank you for coming through and, and talking to us about all this. You said you had a, a, 
th- something you wanted to share uh, for your grandmother or about your grandmother? <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Mom, thank you so much. You know, I just love you. Just have such great energy, and it's eleven thirty at night right now. You know, and I just love the positive <laughs> and just the kindness and compassion that you're sharing with me. You, you know, relatives, I also know that I just want to say thank you so much to all of you for, you know, for being here and making the time. And, and this, you know, this last piece, it, it, it's, it's part of a short story uh, that is actually going to be um, uh, in the Hine Nui Po book of short stories. And so this one is particularly about, it's for my grandmother, Vaimwana. It's to honor her important work. And she was a Tongan traditional healer. And also, it's also this particular short story also is to honor, and, and I only tell parts of it because I also know that I, we, you know, that we, we only have a short amount of time. And it's also about my grandfather, who was a, a Western-trained uh, um, doctor, right, and healer. So he didn't, uh, excuse me, Vaimoana, my grandmother Vaimoana is a Tongan traditional healer. Uh, and also, you know, keeper, just like my other grandmother, uh, Sawiloa, uh, is a keeper of Galoa. Is a keeper of uh, Tongan traditional knowledges and um, and uh, methodologies. So let me let me just go on to this particular short story. <laughs> of course, of course, my computer is deciding to play games with me. Okay, so the the, the, the story is called Grandmother Vaimona, Dalhiva, and healing the severed intimacies. So it was at the changing of the seasons, the moments of slippage, the in-betweenness, the time when light and darkness meet, oscillate, encounter and engulf each other, and yes, just before the breaking, the time that encapsulates the multiplicities of love, the shared spatialities of relationality. Connecting the future, the present, and the past. In the early morning hours in the second week of May, according to the markings on the Western calendar, while everyone was asleep, except for the spirits of the ancestors drinking kava and malaikula, the royal burial grounds and sacred site located in downtown Nukolofa, and under the fragrant poor trees, while the hungry dogs furiously made it, that the baby girl knew that the time was right to release the grasp of her fanua, umbilical cord, and to come out of her mother Lithia's belly. The time of her entrance into the world early in the morning hours, during the time of darkness with its pending edges of new light, was, however, a time that was non-compliant and disobedient to the Western-trained doctor's prediction. He penned his diagnosis in records, multiple pages bounded by a large clipboard. The Western-trained doctor with his serious eyes the color of ripe, dewy, dewy shell was the baby's beloved grandfather, Dr. Siasi Nume Dolu, known and respected throughout the Tongan archipelago. 
He was a Methodist by Figao, pastor at Sayone, the main Methodist chapel located in downtown Nicolofa. In addition, he was a Western-trained healer and medical doctor, and he had a hand in the birth of Tongan children throughout Donga, including many of the smaller islands in the 1960s, 1970s, and the 1980s. Siaosi was the supervising doctor that stood next to Lithia in Viola Hospital to welcome the baby girl, his firstborn grand granddaughter, into the world. But the baby girl's birth didn't follow the Western calendar's classification of linear time. And the time of her birth into the world didn't follow the de declaration of time written in the official records of Viola Hospital. And yet, the baby girl knew that she was right on time. Her birth followed the cycles of time that was given to her mother, Lithia, by her grandmother, the healer by Moana. And the stories of her birth were given to by Moana by the grandmothers and grandfathers that came from another time, the time before time. There were the old ones, ancient, always here. They have never gone away. My Moana was a healer that used the old Tonganologist but often she kept her practice and extensive knowledge of hidden from public eyes, especially from the scrutiny of the Methodist church, including the eyes of many of her own children and relatives. As a commoner woman using the own tongue and ways, by Moana's labor as a woman healer was often not welcomed. Her labor and the labor of other tongue and women healers that centered Tongan cosmologies and Tongan traditional cultural knowledges were made illegal and invalidated, and in its place, the new Tongan status quo privileged the colonial institutions of Western medicine and heteropatriarchy. Thus, they praised the labor of male doctors, like the baby girl's beloved grandfather, Siasi while they marginalized and silenced the labor of Tongan women healers like her grandmother, Vanwana. Well, Bob and relatives, <laughs> I, I think I'll, I, I might leave the, the story there. You know, it continues for several other pages. It's it's beautiful and profound the the your your grandmother and your father that dualism and just just the beauty of of that struggle. Thank you for sharing these sort of healing stories with us today. Really stories for liberation. And um again this is KXSFLP San Francisco 102.5 FM. Uh you're streaming on the World Wide Web perhaps at kxsf.fm for the frequency uplift. And our guest tonight, Fuifi Lupe Niumetolo, a academic, a, a writer, a poet, a scholar, a community activist. Um, and thank you so much for, for coming through and, and reading and talking with me. 
Bob, I had the greatest time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this beautiful invitation to to do what we we call Talanoa or talk story. And thank you so much, relatives, for uh, tuning into this program. I had a beautiful time. Thank you so much. So much love. Thank you. I will. Uh, I'm going to uh, have to take care of some spots in a minute, but uh, I want to f- end out with some of the music that you suggested. I found some beautiful stuff earlier by. Uh, 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 New Zealander Aratoroan uh, group Oceans Before Me, but you also suggested um, the, uh, the the Aratoroan artist. Uh, I'm spacing his name now. Um, oh, uh, Tigalau Nest. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. And and, and uh, I I lo- I loved this song. It's a remix version from his band, uh, the Unity Pacific. And it's a remixed version recently of Give the People. And so we're going to play that. And uh, we'll be back in a little bit. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you for being here. A little more time, just a little more time.
And that was Tahuna Breaks from Eritrea from New Zealand, Empower Me from 2009 on Chewy Records before that. Uh, Unity Pacific, the band uh, founded and held together by Tikilau Ness, a uh, new in New Zealander activist, reggae artist who was deeply involved in the uh, Polynesian Panthers as well as uh, a long history of that fighting back against the Don raids, against uh, uh, displacement and uh, Maori occupa- uh, land protests uh, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, veteran musician, in any event, activist musician, Tigelo Ness uh, with Unity Pacific, Give the People. Uh, and before that, we were honored and blessed again to... Uh, be in a long discussion and uh, a great series of readings by uh, the uh, Tongan uh, activist, community activist, storyteller, academic, Huifi uh, Lupe Niumetolu, who was uh, reading uh, from her various uh, books in, in, in the offing, and we heard most recently a story sort of about and for her grandmother, Vai Moana, and uh, that's as part of the book, soon to be out, Looking for Hine Nui Tepo, Searching for Our Mother. Thank you again to Fui Fui Lupi, Lupi I'm sorry, uh, Metolo from coming through for being part of this second Sunday's Poets. There is, uh, it also today is an important day in history as well. And I was thinking of moving away from music from Pacific a little bit uh, into some other activist places and indigenous musics. um, That it is the day, November 14th, that Ruby Bridges, uh, civil rights activist and an eight-year-old girl, uh, desegregated the schools in Little Rock, Arkansas. Powerful moment. And I think I want to play a tribute to her from Yaz Ahmed, a Bahraini British jazz musician uh, from Polyhymnia, the first release. But this is a, re- a remix, the DJ Plead remix. We're going to go a little all over the map from here to Norway and uh, ancient and Sami indigenous song, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. Yazamed, Ruby Bridges, Rise of Power. This is, again, the frequency uplift, 102.5 FM. We're going to hit some uh, spots because we've been delinquent in that effect after this.
Support for KXSF comes from Park Plaza Fine Foods, a family-owned and operated grocery store serving San Francisco's Park Merced neighborhood. Park Plaza features an expanded foreign foods section along with all your other grocery needs, as well as a popular sandwich deli with a reputation that stretches well beyond their immediate neighborhood. Park Plaza considers their customers family and that's the way you'll be treated there. Visit Park Plaza Fine Foods at 111 Cambon Drive near San Francisco State University. Thanks for supporting KXSF 102.5 FM. Hi, this is Brother Bruno, host of the Brother Bruno Show. Every Monday, noon to 2. Thank you for listening to and supporting KXSF-FM. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for donating if you can. Hit that uh, webpage. And now from Norway, Modi, Asami song. A lot more to be said about that.
Chanting in vain This has been the Frequency Uplift and Out. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our guest, Felipe Nui Matola. This was a Sami song, indigenous from Norway. It's midnight. KXSFLP, San Francisco, 102.5 FM.